Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Take your Bibles and open up to Genesis 37. Genesis 37, if you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you. If you're using that, it's on page 36 in those Bibles. We want to make sure you have a copy of God's Word in front of you because that, uh, what that says is way more important than anything I could tell you today. We want to keep that in mind. And I pray that, as we just sang uh, these three songs, that you stopped and paused a minute to think about what you were saying. Um, in the good times and bad, you are God alone. Think about that for a minute. Um, you are God alone. To sing in light of the circumstances we're in, many of us go, man, uh, times feel uh, more bad than good for some of you these days. Can we proclaim together in that that God is still on the throne? That He is still God alone. And if you can proclaim that, then the last song we just sang has a whole new meaning. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. That's not by chance. Um, I pray that you have that blessed assurance. And oh, what a Savior He is. Amen? And this really was uh, structured in such a way because it really is where we're shifting to. Uh, asking the question, is this all there is? <laughs> is this it? Is the season I'm in right now, is that where the story ends? Many of you are going through or have gone through seasons of life that felt as though everything that could go wrong did. Some of you may feel that way uh, just consistently, that my life is a series of train wrecks that keep coming. Sometimes it's seasons, but other times it just seems prolonged. But let's take it a step further. Have you ever been in a season like that and wondered, where is God in the midst of this? He seems absent. And maybe how you feel. And over the next several weeks, really as we prepare to close out Genesis... Over the next several weeks, we really see a sub series in the midst of this bigger narrative that focuses in on the life of Joseph. But more importantly than that, throughout this whole sub series, we really have this 
central idea that you're going to hear repeatedly over the next several weeks. And it is this. What man intended for evil, God intended for good. This is not some made up phrase. In fact, we'll get to this at the very end. This concludes kind of the whole of Genesis This is actually a phrase that Joseph himself says later on in the narrative, but summarizes the whole of what we're going to see over the next several weeks. And as you think about this, I pray you internalize this because this brings about a different way of thinking than what is all too common. Woe is me. My life is miserable. My life is a mess. Now, I've joked with a couple of people uh, over the last couple of weeks uh, in saying that uh, after spending July until now in Genesis, I really should have entitled my whole series, What a Mess. <laughs> right? Because that's what we keep saying and what we keep seeing in this narrative is, what a mess. And yet... The focus is that in the sense of creation, transgression, redemption, what man intended to be evil, fleshly, wicked, God intended for good. And there is no other being, there's no other name that could take the mess and bring about redemption, salvation, hope that is not earthly hope, but hope that rings eternally, right? What man intended for evil, God intended for good. Now, last week we left off with Jacob finally appearing to surrender to the Lord's leading in his life. Calling on those in his care to rid themselves of the idols that were in the household. Setting up an altar to God. And as we mentioned last week, one might hope that life would get better That Jacob with his family at this point would live happily ever after. If you can't tell by our main idea, this is far from what happens. And we're going to pick the story up in chapter 37, verse 1. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Everyone say, "Uh uh-oh. Because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, how many I'm curious, how many of you have heard this story before? Put your hands up. Many of you, if you've grown up in the church, uh, you've most likely heard this story. If you're outside the church, you still might have heard this story. Joseph and his coat of many colors. Now, what you miss out on if you have not read the rest of Genesis is uh, this should remind us of another family with favoritism issues. 
Isaac and Rebekah. That would be Jacob and Esau's parents, right? And as we talked about last week, sin has ripple effects. And now we see a pattern repeated where uh, Jacob is playing favorites, as we've seen him do with his wives and now with his sons, where Joseph becomes the favorite as a child of his old age. And this favoritism has caused internal issues and spiritual blindness. It had ripple effects. And we see Jacob follow the pattern of his family up to now. Now, Joseph does not help the tensions any as he brings a bad report about his brothers. We don't know what the bad report was about, but at minimum, uh, Joseph tattles on his brothers. And there is a good amount of reasoning we can assume that Joseph was well aware that he was the favorite. And that's emphasized even further when he shares not only one dream, but two dreams that speak of his prominence over his family, where not only do his brothers bow down to him, but the moon and the stars do as well. It doesn't take a lot of imagination for you to figure out how the brothers who already had a beef with Joseph responded to Joseph's dreams. And if we're honest, uh, how many of you have siblings in here? Okay, if we're honest, you guys would respond the same way. Ah, see? Where in the midst of this, if you had a sibling come to you, you're like, oh, you know what? I had this dream. You were bowing to me. And you're going to go, yeah, whatever. You take that dream somewhere else. The second time Joseph mentions a dream in verse 10, even his father rebukes him and goes, whoa, 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 Joseph. Really? Is this, is this really? He, when he told his father, verse 10, and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, you might ask, what does any of this have to do with what takes place? Uh, what takes place next? Whether we see it or not, here, I want you to grasp this. God is setting the stage for rejection by Joseph's brothers and in his sovereignty knowing what was going to come years later. What man intended for evil, God intended for good. Let's look at verse 12. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17 of chapter 37. It says, Now his brothers went to pasture, their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem and found uh, and a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. 
Now, if we've been following this narrative, we can understand Jacob's reasoning for sending Joseph to check on his brothers. They were, in fact, north, not far from the region that Simeon and Levi had wiped out the nation of Shechem on behalf of their sister Dinah. Who knows how the rest of the land had responded to this. And note that we're talking about day's journey, not hours. Well, it's easy for us to read this in the context and go, oh, you know what? Um, you know, Joseph just bopped over to like Peoria and checked on his brothers. No, we're talking about day's journey. It's Joseph 17 is going after his brothers and it's taken some time. And he gets to the land he thought they were in. They aren't there. And so he inquires and they end up farther away than even that. Now, as Joseph gets close, his brothers see him and they begin plotting. Look at verse 18. <clears throat> they saw him from afar and before he came near to them, <clears throat> they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. That he might rescue him out of their father, out of their hand to restore him to his father. So you see Reuben's motive here. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Now, upon doing this, there's no remorse here. The brothers are not remorseful about what they've just done. And in fact, there's not only satisfaction in their solution. They sit down to have lunch or dinner. They sit down to eat. And they're pondering this. There's no perceived hesitation or conviction about what has just happened. Just fleshly sinfulness. But it doesn't stop here. Look at verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand be upon him, not be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Joseph gets sold. Jacob's sons now deceive him. How ironic is that once again? And Jacob mourns. Joseph is sold again to a man named Potiphar in Egypt, which we'll pick up on more in weeks to come. What a mess, right? What ripples of selfishness, what ripples of disunity 
one could easily question, where is God? Especially if you put yourself in the shoes of Joseph, right? Who went out to check on his brothers, just as his father Israel or Jacob had said. Only to be met by a band of his own kin, stripping him of his clothes and throwing him into a pit, then to be sold into slavery. We can almost imagine, as he's lying in the pit and his brothers are eating lunch, the cries for each brother as he sought to understand all that was going on. We can almost hear him try and negotiate with his brothers as he sold into slavery. There's, there's another way. Please, we can work this out somehow, some way. Just don't do this. And yet in their flesh, they responded. Where is God? What man intended for evil, God intended for good. Now it's really interesting because after Joseph's coat is brought to Israel, uh, he mourns and the brother just go on with life. And you have this massive pause in the narrative of Joseph that leaves you kind of in suspense. Joseph's been sold into slavery. Israel is mourning that Joseph is dead. After having been deceived by the brothers, the life continues moving forward. And then there's chapter 38 in the midst of this. And there's this there's this pause. And so you're going to have to hang on for next week to know what happens to Joseph. What happens next? And in fact, when it transitions to chapter 38, there's many people who uh, wrestle with this because it totally changes the narrative and you leaves yourself wondering, why do we now talk about what we're going to read here in a minute in chapter 38? And the reason for that has to do with this story in the end is not about Joseph. In the end, this story is not about Israel, Jacob. In the end, this story is about God's plan of redemption. In the end, all that is here is meant to remind us once more that none of these people here are the Savior. None of these people here in their mess are adequate in and of themselves to bring about what only God can do. And in the same way, there should be great recognition and application for us to go. In the midst of my mess, I am unable to bring about any good, lasting result of my own strength. I cannot do this apart from God alone. As we move into chapter 38, we move into a portion of this narrative that honestly is challenging. And what we're going to see as we analyze 37 and 38 in tangent with one another are deep parallels in the midst of this central idea that what man intended for evil, God intended for good. Let's look at verse 1 of 38. It says, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. 
Yet again, she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went to his brother's wife, he would waste his seed on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. I don't know about you, but this leaves me with a lot of questions. In fact, this is one of those sections of scripture that a lot of people just skip over. We hear the story of Joseph and we jump right from Joseph being sold into slavery to Joseph in Egypt, right? And here in the middle of that is chapter 38. What was Judah thinking? He simply gave in to his fleshly impulses. It said he went, he saw, he turned to these women. There was no process about this. There was no thought about this selfish fleshly impulse. I'm going to do what I want. What was the quality of this home that led Ur and Onan both to be so selfishly wicked that the Lord put both of them to death? Whoa. Everyone say, whoa. This should cause us great pause, right? Someone gets to the point of being so wicked that the Lord just wipes them out. And then there's Onan being put to death by the Lord. What a mess. Everyone say, what a mess. Now, some of you are sitting here and you're, you're struggling to move past the situa- situation with Onan because you have no idea what is going on here. It's totally understandable. The short version of this is legal custom at this point in time was that if there's two brothers and the one is married and the brother dies then it was the legal responsibility of the other brother to marry his wife so that the dead brother's name or legacy would move on. Now, eventually, God in the law in Deuteronomy does away with this. But we see here at this point that God in his sovereignty upheld the practice of the day in the sense that when Onan decided, no, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to act in selfishness. His life ends. And God is the one who does that. Now, in the scope of this, you still may be left with a question like I was this week going, why is this so significant? And what it comes down to is God is establishing the messianic line of redemption. And if you read ahead, you find out that this actually is established through the line of Judah. We'll see that in a minute in some of Jesus' genealogies. And so by Onan refusing to do what was le- he was legally bound to do according to their time, 
he was at the same time refusing to do that which God had purposed for him to do and was interfering or denying walking in obedience to what God would have for him. It's really an obedience issue. It's really a fleshly issue. What's more important? My fleshly perspective and opinion or obedience to what God would have. And you look at this and you go, this was already such a mess. How in the world did this have any bearing upon that? Uh, let me just share a, a, a piece of information with you. Just because things are already a mess does not exempt us from the responsibility of obedience. And if it, some of you here have stories where in the past your life is a mess. Praise God that that's not the end of the story, right? But that's what we start thinking. Things keep going wrong and bad and bad and bad. And we start to just accept, oh, this is my life. This is just the way it is. And it's all because of all this back here that this is the way things are now. No, we have a choice. We either choose to walk in obedience or we choose to remain in our flesh, in our sin. At the core, we see multiple rejections of God's purpose to establish the line of the Messiah through the line of Jacob, specifically through Judah. Therefore, while we usher our judgments on earthly level, God ushers judgments on an eternal level. We seek to understand justice from a fleshly perspective. God brings about justice from a holy perspective. At the end of this, Tamar has been left childless. <clears throat> Judah has practically written her off. And we wonder what will happen next. Buckle up because you won't be expecting this. Look at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira, the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, <clears throat> she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. This is important key, okay? Judah had not fulfilled what he had promised to do. When Judah saw her, saw Tamar, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. <clears throat> he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Now, for a moment, I want you to understand this would be the equivalent of giving someone your driver's license and your social security card. It's your identification. You're marked as yours and yours alone. <clears throat> so he gave them to her and went into her. She conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments 
of her widowhood. Now, when Judah goes to send payment back to this place, she isn't there. And upon finding out that she's not there, Judah decides to just ignore this so that he's not embarrassed. Three months later, Tamar is clearly showing and Judah is informed that she is pregnant. And right out of the gate, he declares that she's to be burned because she's been unfaithful. Good grief. At this moment, Tamar rises victorious in the midst of the mess, bringing out Judah's signet and cord. And I, I just, I, this week I sat there and I wondered, I wonder what his face looked like. He's been caught. And his response in verse 28, or not in verse 28, his response in this, in verse 26, Judah identified them as if nobody else would have been able to. She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, and he did not know her again. At the end of this chapter, Tamar has twins, Perez and Zerah, and this portion of the narrative is brought to a close. What in the world? Right? Where is God in the midst of all of this? What man intended for evil, God intended for good. How can this be? How in the world can you look at this and see any good in it? How is it possible in the midst of such fleshly frustration and impulse to see any positive merit? You ever been there? How can you see anything good in this? And I want to challenge you in the fact that we see a narrow view and God sees from an eternal perspective. Here's another really core truth for you to remember. There is nothing that you can do to derail the purposes of God. Now, you, you can make the choice to not live in light of His will, and it's to your detriment. But you choosing to not live in light of God's will does not derail what He's already doing. That's where our greatest hope should be found. The fact that everything around us can be in chaos and his purposes remain. That's the blessed assurance that we sung about earlier. It's a hope that it's all a mess. Yes, it is. But God's still on the throne. You are God alone. We sang about that. Nothing that happens to you on this earth can derail the purposes of God. And what happens? Here's what happens, church family. Life happens. Mess happens. You make poor choices. And then you project how you're feeling on who God is. And you go, I feel like everything's in chaos and everything's a mess. Therefore, God must be in chaos and be in a mess. Wrong. God has been the same since before creation. God is constant. He's unchanging. He's faithful. He's gracious. He is love. It's not just that He is loving. God defines what love is. And we have to stop projecting our image upon God and remember that we're created in His. 
God is in the exact same space that he has been in the midst of this narrative as he has been throughout all of Genesis. Perfectly in control with his purposes in mind and redemption as the end goal. To give you an example of this, I want you to just write down in your notes, if you're taking notes, Matthew chapter 1. I'm just going to read a section out of this. I want to encourage you to turn to it later. It could be your homework this week. To give you a perspective on the broad view here. Matthew chapter 1, we have the genealogy of Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Listen to this. And this is where the names of people can be really significant. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, the Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Who is the very first woman ever mentioned in Jesus' genealogy here? Tamar. It's not Sarah. It's not Rebecca. It's Tamar. And in fact, the other women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus here, you have Tamar, you have Rahab, and you have Ruth. What is significant about that? None of these women are of Jewish descent. And you go, why is that significant? In Galatians chapter 3, it says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Here's the significance of this. Jesus came as a Savior for all. Not just for the Jew, for the Gentile, which is a huge praise because y'all... We're made up of mostly Gentiles. And if Jesus only came for the Jew, we would be without any hope. See, clear back here in Genesis chapter 38, God already knew Christ. God already knew the plan of redemption. This is so long before Jesus is even in the picture, but God was in control of every piece and there is nothing that could stand in his way. Not even the mess.
in application of this, I want you to just remember a couple of things before we close. Number one, stop trying to solve your earthly frustrations through fleshly means. Joseph's brothers responded in their flesh. Judah responded in his flesh. You go back through every single person in Genesis thus far and see where they responded in their flesh. You and I's tendency is to respond in our flesh. Your flesh will not solve eternal needs. No matter how much you do, no matter how much you focus on quote-unquote the right things, you are incapable of transforming people's hearts. God alone can do that. Stop trying to solve earthly frustrations through fleshly means. This does not mean that you become passive. It means you become active towards the right things. You want to know what the right things are? Read your Bible. Focus in on what is true. Secondly, and this is probably the most challenging for many of you in difficult seasons, stop acting as if this season is the whole story. We're really, really guilty of this. We get stuck in a rut and we convince ourselves that this is it. This is all there is. And we forget that we serve God alone on the throne. And we lose sight of the fact that the story of redemption doesn't stop here in Genesis. But is part of the bigger narrative of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. He's our only hope. Now, if you are separated from Christ, then you have reason to feel a heaviness when it feels like this season is all there is. Because if you are apart from Christ, then this life on this earth is the only place you will find any significance or joy. And that's a really sad reality when you look around. But I want to tell you, there's so much more than this. Our hope is not in this world. It shouldn't be. Church family, may we not be a people whose hope is in this world. Amen? May it not be so. It's easy to say. It's a lot harder to do. I join that group of people that say, I want to live as if my hope is not in this world, but it's hard. That's me. Jesus is the only thing that lasts. In the end of the story, God's purposes will always prevail. What man intended for evil, God intended for good. Can you believe that? Can you recognize that to be true? I pray you can. And if you're struggling with that and you're going, I'm just struggling to not see this season as it. I want you to talk with me. I'm going to be down here front after the service. I want you to come see me, email me, message me. I want to walk this with you because there is so much more than this. And it starts with Christ. It starts with Jesus. I'm going to have the worship team come up. And uh, over the next several weeks, we're actually going to be learning this newer song. Um, It's very recent. In fact, it was 
recently released. And there's this whole breadth right now of newer hymn-like songs that are coming out that I've just have a deep love with um, because they speak these core truths. And this specific song is entitled, Oh, But God. And I, so today I want you to really seek to learn it. We're going to keep, keep doing it in the weeks ahead. But the truth in this is I may feel like this is it, but God. In the midst of our stories, the intersection, in the midst of the mess of, oh, but God. And I want us to learn this, take it to heart, and then proclaim this as we step into a world that desperately needs a hope that is not here. Father, as we come to this, may we fix our eyes on you. May we be reminded of a hope that comes only from you. And may we give you all the glory for what takes place in Jesus' name, I pray.